I'm gonna get a. I'm gonna download the music from that, and just whenever I walk in a room, have those violins just kind of play. Wow, oh, there's Corey. Um, glad you guys are here this morning. Uh, I'm excited. We're starting a new book of the Bible. If you've never been here before, this is what we do. It's called expository teaching, which is just a fancy way of saying when we study the Bible, we go line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we do whole books of the Bible at a time. We just finished up the last book of the Old Testament a couple of weeks ago, the book of Malachi, and this week we're going to start the first book of the New Testament. Now, I often, if you've been coming to this church for any length of time, whenever I start a new book, I'm like, this is my favorite book, and, and so they can't all be my favorite, right? But I will say that Matthew probably is my favorite book of the Bible. I think it's, uh, no, I'm serious this time. No, it's, <laughs> I think it's probably the most important book of the Bible. I'm not saying that to sound uh, dramatic or extreme. If anyone ever comes to me and they say, where should I start? Start in the book of Matthew. I think it's extremely important. So what we're going to do, we're going to be in this book of the Bible for, for probably seven or eight months. We're going to be in it for a while, breaking it down and and walking through it chapter by chapter, and um, it will not be disappointing. It's going to be monumental. It's very, very important. So here's what we're going to do today. When you walked into any of our entrances, you should have gotten a notes handout. It has virtually everything I'm going to talk about already in there, okay? So if I go a little fast and you want to go back and look a little bit deeper, you got it right there. Everything should also be on the screens. So as we walk through this, if for some reason I missed something, look up. Things will be on the screen that I may have missed when I'm talking, okay? We also have an app, the Experience Community app. You can get it on any kind of smartphone, and uh, if you download that, if you click on service times and sermon notes, everything is there, including the scripture. So very, very handy. If you have a Bible, we're in the very first book of the New Testament, and not to insult anyone's intelligence in this room, but the Bible's broken up into two big chunks, an Old Testament or covenant, and then a New Testament in covenant, okay, promise, all right? So we're starting, we just got done with one big chunk, now we're gonna start the beginning of the next big chunk, the New Testament. Here's what we're gonna do this morning, though. I'm not gonna pray yet and jump into the scripture. I'm gonna give you guys uh, kind of an extended intro to the book of Matthew, some history, a little bit of cultural context about the author a little bit. We'll walk through that, and then I'll pray, and we'll go through chapter one pretty quick. Okay, and I'm not going to read all of chapter one because I would just botch a whole lot of names in that first part. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to spare you of that. So I know all you Hebrews and Greek scholars are out there and I don't want to misinterpret anything. So, okay. So a little bit about the book of Matthew. So the book of Matthew refers back to the Old Testament somewhere in the neighborhood of about 60 times. A lot of times in Christianity, I hear people say, well, the Old Testament is irrelevant and that's just not true. Without the Old Testament, we would have no idea why we would need a New Testament and why Jesus even came to earth. That's why there are so many references back, almost to a chapter, back to the Old Testament, and Jesus is one of the ones that refers, a lot of times, back to the Old Testament. Matthew is also a mini-Bible of sorts. The reason why I think this book of the Bible is so important is when you read the book of Matthew, you get a snapshot of basically this entire book from Genesis to Revelation. So if you had to pick just one book in the Bible to read, I think it's probably the best one to read. So without Matthew, we cannot fully understand the Old Testament, 
And without Matthew, we cannot fully understand the New Testament. It's kind of the, the, the door in which the entire Bible kind of pivots on. It's a very, very important book of the Bible, okay? So if you're reading the Bible, and if you do start in the book of Matthew, you're going to find that the first four books of the New Testament are a little redundant. And I don't mean that disrespectfully, but they're called the four Gospels. Now listen, the entire Bible is the Gospel, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, all the way to the end, is the narrative in the story of God and mankind. It's all the good news, right? All of it. But the first four books of the New Testament are specifically called the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Now, they tell a lot of the same stories. Some of them are a little different. They include different things in there. But people often ask, why is there four of them? What's the point? The point is, is between these four books of the Bible, we get a well-rounded look at Jesus. We get these different perspectives of the same Jesus. So Mark gave the perspective to the Romans. Luke gave the perspective to the Greeks. John kind of gave a perspective to everyone. That's a really, really fun book of the Bible. And then Matthew was chosen to share about Jesus to the Jews. He was a Jew, and he was chosen to communicate the gospel, communicate who Jesus was to the Jewish people. Now, that's very ironic, and I'll tell you why that's very ironic, because the Jews would have hated Matthew. Now, he was a Jew, but he was a tax collector for the Roman Empire. Now, we don't really like tax collectors at all, but if there's... If, sorry if you work for the IRS in here. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> But he was not only a tax collector, what he would do is he would go to his own people, overtax them, take their money, and give their money to the Roman Empire. People would have hated Matthew, the tax collector, but he was the one chosen by God to communicate this message to his people. He was also a journalist of sorts. He was the one that probably would have been walking at the back of the pack with the 12 disciples and Jesus writing down what they were doing. He would be the one kind of taking notes where they would go, where they would travel, the conversations they would have. He was the journalist that kind of documented what was happening those three and a half years that they traveled around with Jesus. Now, the central message of Matthew is pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Matthew was deeply concerned for communicating the restoration of God's kingdom and making it clear that Jesus is the Savior. Pretty straightforward stuff. And so every time we do a new book of the Bible, we like to go into that book of the Bible, and I'll try to pick one phrase or one passage that kind of summarizes the thesis or the main theme of that book. And the one for Matthew is exceptionally simple. And it is that Jesus is the king of the Jews. That's from Matthew 27, 37. That was his whole point, is to teach the Jews that your savior has come, your Messiah, your king has come. That's what he wanted to teach them. Now, the historical setting of Matthew is also very interesting. If you weren't here for the end of the book of Malachi, if you have a Bible, you don't have to do this, but in between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there was a 400-year gap of time where God did not teach his people anything new. There was no new prophecies, no new revelations. That doesn't mean that God didn't have a personal relationship with people that followed him, but there was no new news, if you will. So in that time, during that prophetic silence, God's people were, were longing to hear something. And there was a lot of different social upheaval and governmental upheaval. There was a lot going on during this time. 
And so the prophetic silence, this is what's so interesting about Matthew. Not only was God going to break a 400-year span of silence, God was going to do it in person. He was going to show up as Jesus Christ, look at people in the eyes, and tell them the new revelation. He was going to tell them how to live, tell them how to, to, to reconcile themselves with God the Father. God was going to come on earth and communicate in person, which is pretty amazing. Again, this 400-year span, and even when Jesus was born, it was a time of, of huge confusion. The Jewish people had been overtaken by the Persians, then the Persians were overtaken by the Greeks, then the Greeks were overtaken by the Romans, and during that time, the lineage of kings that the Jews had always had had been broken, and in fact, it had gotten so bad to where the Roman Empire, they appointed the king of the Jews, and so the king that was there, Herod, when Jesus was born, was not really the rightful king. They had lost a lot of their cultural identity. They had lost a lot of their religious identity. And so in that 400 years, the stage was perfectly set for Jesus to come. Perfectly set for him to come in and to make a difference, to start the process by which we are redeemed and by which his entire planet is redeemed. Perfect scenario for Jesus to come. So what we see in Matthew is the ultimate battle, right? The battle of kind of cosmic proportions, good and evil, God and the devil, and how God is going to unify and establish his kingdom with his people. He's going to close that gap between God and humanity. We see this in the, in, in the, in the Lord's Prayer, which is in Matthew chapter six, kind of the father's dream that is realized in the book of Matthew as he says, I want the kingdom to be realized on earth like it is in heaven. He prays that. That's kind of the Father's dream in the book of Matthew, that we come together. We also see, and we'll see as we read the first part of Matthew chapter 1, there are a couple of consequences that happened when mankind sinned. Most people, whether you're a Christian in this room or not, you're familiar with the story at least a little bit. If you go way back into the book of Genesis, everything was good, everything was perfect, we see that there was one tree in the middle of this garden that God said, don't touch that tree. What does man and woman do? They touch the tree. They eat from the fruit. God shows up on the scene, and what have you done? I told you not to do this. And the devil was there who had tempted Eve. And right in Genesis chapter 3, God even tells the devil, I am going to send someone to take care of you. It's going to be Jesus. So we hear about Jesus way in the beginning of the Bible. But there were some consequences to mankind's sin. One, humanity was never the same. Not until Jesus comes back will we be completely restored to what we're supposed to be. We also know that the earth has never been the same. And so when God comes back, he's going to create a new earth. It's going to be reclaimed as well. So in the Old Testament, again, this is why the Old Testament is so important, when you go back into the Old Testament, God made two very important promises to two very important men, and it's part of this redemption story. One was man to a man named Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I am going to make your descendants as numerous as the sand on the shore of the sea. Now, that's biologically impossible, right? Even if you had a lot of time, and I don't even know if there's enough women to do that, but anyways, I shouldn't have said that, but there is not enough time or, or women to, to have that many children in one's lifetime. So how is that possible? The way it's possible is every Jewish person is descended from Abraham. He was kind of the starting point to the Jewish people. So they're all descendants of him. That's a lot of people. 
And because of Jesus Christ, we are also descendants of Abraham. We are grafted into that tree, if you will, with the Jewish people, with the people of God, because of Jesus Christ, and we are also the descendants of Abraham. Right now on planet Earth, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of two billion of us. It's a lot of people. So the promise came to fruition because of Jesus Christ. The other promise was to a man named David, a king. And God promised David that the Savior would come from the bloodline of David. And we're going to see in Matthew chapter 1 that it did. That Jesus is from the bloodline, the lineage of King David. So those things come to fruition in Jesus. Now, why is all of this important? It's important because if we don't learn the context of the Bible, we can take the Bible out of context and can actually be quite dangerous. So listen, in reading the Word, it is important that we study some history. It's important that we study some culture while also taking those timeless lessons out of that and applying it to our lives today. Yes, it was a different time. It was a different place. It was a different culture. But there are timeless lessons throughout the entire Bible that are meant for all of humanity. So what that means is this. The Bible was not written to us but the Bible was written for us. What that means is the book of Timothy was not written to Corey Trimble. It was written to Timothy, hence the name Timothy. But all the different principles that are in the, the letter from Paul to Timothy, the principles do apply to Corey. They are timeless principles. It wasn't written to me, but it was written for me. I hope that makes sense. Okay, so I'm gonna pray. We're gonna jump into chapter one. I'm gonna read a little bit and then skip about 15 verses, and I'm going to read a little bit more, and, uh, and we'll break it down, okay? Lord Jesus, God, I just want to thank you. Lord, thank you for everyone who's here today, God. Thank you, Lord, that people are willing to give up some time on their weekend, God, to, to break open the Word of God, to, to study. Lord, I pray that this book of the Bible, that it blesses us, that it sharpens us, God. I pray, Lord, that we have the desire to want to hear the truth, regardless of how uncomfortable that may be at times. Lord, we pray that you don't only keep your hand on this church, we pray that you keep your hand on every church in our city, God, every church in our community, every church in our, our county, God, the churches we work with all over the United States, God, and the churches that we work with in other countries outside of the United States, Lord. We pray that you bless the nonprofits that we partner with. And Lord, we just pray that everything we do today that it makes us closer to you and that it honors you and makes you proud. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. All right, starting in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Again, I'm going to read a little bit, skip a lot, and then read a little bit more. Matthew says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now then we have a lot of list of names from Abraham to David, 14 generations. Then we have from David to the Babylonian exile, which is the book of Daniel when the Babylonians took the Jewish people captive. We have 14 generations. And then 14 generations from the end of the Babylonian exile to the birth of Jesus. Then it says in verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14. From David until the exile, 14. And from the exile until Christ, 14. 
Now, let's be honest with ourselves, guys. Sometimes if you've read the Bible, you come across lists like this and you're like, why in the heck is this in here, right? Why do I care that such and such begat such and such? Why are all these numbers and archaeological places in here? We'll get to that here in a second and we'll see how relevant that is. The first thing that we learn, though, from this list is that the Old Testament is vital. Many people discount the Old Testament, but we, we, we must understand that for a long time, thousands of years, God had been setting the stage for the Savior to come. And what Matthew 1.1 does is it connects the two. It brings them together. And the immediate mention of Jesus being both the son of David and the son of Abraham shows us that Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. God made some promises to some people in the Old Testament, and, and Jesus Christ, when he comes, is he is the culmination, the fulfillment of those promises. So it connects, it shows continuity, and it shows that God keeps his word. Now, this list is important. And again, it's very easy for us to kind of skip over parts like this in the Bible. But the Jewish people wanted a Messiah. They wanted a Messiah that came in the way that we often want leaders now. Someone who was a politician, someone that was extravagant, someone that had a strong military presence, an earthly king. But what we learn as we get into Matthew is Jesus was born in a rural area, he was from a rural town, kind of a backwoods town. He was a blue-collar worker, came from a very modest family. And even though we know that about him, his genealogy proves to us that he actually came from royalty, coming from the most important forefathers of the faith, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, David, Solomon. Jesus was in that lineage. So what that tells us is this. Jesus wasn't just some redneck cult leader that came out of nowhere and was like, hey, follow me, guys. Everyone's like, okay, right? He didn't just come out of nowhere. He had royal roots. He was the rightful heir to the throne. And so this list is impressive. It teaches us a lot, and it's also extremely progressive. So not only did this humble carpenter, Jesus, have royal roots, and not only was he the legal heir to the throne of Israel, in this list, there are four women mentioned. Now, you're like, we don't care, right? We have equality in our culture right now, and even the staff at our churches, I think we have more women on staff than we have men, and so to us, that's not a big deal. In Jewish culture 2,000 years ago, it was a very big deal. Not only are there four women mentioned in this, several of those women are not even Jewish women. Not only that, one of the women, Bathsheba, had an affair with King David. Why is this important? Why, is it, why are these people mentioned in this list? What we see is, is in the redemptive plan of God for humanity, we see that women are going to be a part of that redemptive plan. We see that people of different colors are going to be part of that redemptive plan. And we even see that people have made awful mistakes are going to be a part of that redemptive plan. The reason why that list is so powerful and important is we learn in this list that everyone in this room, regardless of your gender, your color, or the mistakes you've made, God wants to save you. Not only does God want to save you, God wants to use us in his plan. That's why lists like this are vital and important. There's also a lot of history in this list, a ton of history in this list. 
The genealogy is broken down into 14, 14, and 14. Now, not everyone is mentioned in this list who, who should be, right? I shouldn't, shouldn't say uh, should be, but Matthew chose not to list everyone. They're more like landmarks. So what some people will do who are hostile to the Christian faith and who are atheists, what they will do is they will take the genealogy of Matthew, they will compare it to other genealogies in the New Testament, and they will see that they don't, they're not exactly the same. They don't line up exactly the same. Now, that's not a fluke, and it doesn't mean that the entire Bible should be thrown out because of these things. It just means that Matthew was writing not a comprehensive list, but landmarks, and other authors were writing a more comprehensive list. That's all that means. And what, what Matthew wanted to do was connect Jesus to the royal bloodline. That's what his genealogies do. Now, I hope this doesn't hurt anyone's feelings in here. But here's the thing about the Bible. The Bible, through things like genealogies and archaeological places and the history that it records and the names and documents that it records, it gives a ton of evidence towards the fact that Jesus did exist, that these places existed, that these events took place. There is so much evidence. There's even a lot of evidence from science and, and history so much evidence that this Bible talks about and it gives support to Jesus. But here's the thing. We cannot use archaeology, genealogy, or even science to prove God, and we can't use those things to disprove God either because believing in God is an act of faith. So there must be a heart component. It cannot be all truth. There has to be spirit or a heart mixed into that equation as well. So guys, I recommend that you don't get into these pointless arguments of constantly saying, well, I watched a YouTube video that they discovered Noah's Ark. It's real, right? They haven't. And also, that doesn't prove anything. It proves that there was a big boat once upon a time. So we need to be careful. I believe that science and history and archaeology does point to God, but it does not prove anything. It has to be a heart issue. Is that safe? Everyone's still okay, right? All right, no one's thrown anything yet. Let's move on. Okay. You guys are awfully quiet. It's okay. The birth of Jesus Christ came about in this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. So as we start off the story of Jesus, this is fascinating. One of the first things Matthew does is he doesn't just say the birth of Jesus. He says the birth of Jesus Christ. Now Christ is a big deal. That word carries a significant amount of weight. That means the Savior. That means the Messiah. So adding that name on to Jesus, what Matthew is saying to us is he saying this wasn't just an influential little boy that was born. This is God in the flesh. This is the savior of mankind. Now, we still need to make that distinction today. Because if you watch, and I love the History Channel, I love National Geographic, I love Nova, I'm a geek when it comes to that stuff. I love that stuff. And almost all of those research engines and all those different uh, organizations that do history and things like that, almost all of them will agree that there was a historical Jesus, but they think he was just a good guy, right? A charismatic speaker that was ahead of his time and that he was those things, but he was more than those things. 
And so we have to decide, do we believe Jesus was more than just a good man? Because we can't have it both ways. C.S. Lewis said that Jesus Christ had to be one of three things. He either had to be a pathological liar, because he walked around telling everyone he was God, or he had to be crazy, because he walked around telling everyone he was God, or he was God. He has to be one of the three. You can't have it either way. You can't say, well, I just believe he was a really good dude. Really? He walked around lying to everyone and claiming to heal people and bringing the kingdom to earth. You think he was a really good dude? You like pathological liars, right? And so it doesn't work both ways. We have to come to a conclusion. Who is Jesus to us, right? It also says that Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Why is this important? It was important that Jesus be born to a virgin because it solidifies that Jesus was 100% human. He was also 100% divinity. He was the only God-man that has and ever will exist. He was 100% flesh and bone, and he was 100% God in that flesh and bone. And the story of redemption that we're going to study over the next couple of months The story of redemption and salvation couldn't work if he wasn't both of those things. So again, is that easily understood? It's not easily understood. It's one of those mysteries. And guys, I hate to break it to us. We're not going to have the answer to every question on this side of eternity. And we have to be okay with that. But we have to come to the conclusion in our minds that we believe that God was, yes, fully man and Jesus was both fully God. Okay? We also have to understand some culture during this time. The marriage customs during Jesus' days were a little bit different than our marriage customs today. What would happen then is like, you know how like we get engaged now, but you can break off an engagement. You can get engaged now and and, and we can still kind of like live our our lives and we're we're gonna be married, but we're not yet. It was different in Jesus' time. When you got engaged, betrothed, it was as solidifying as you're already married, right? The only thing was is you couldn't have sex with each other, so, I mean, that sucks. Like, we're legally bound. It's okay to like sex, by the way, guys. It's a good thing. God created it. Whole Song of Solomon's all about that. Anyways, if you're new here, you're like, I don't like this church at all. So, um, or you might really like this church. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, let me get back on track here. My mom's watching this sermon too, so that's uncomfortable anyways. So here's the thing. Mary and Joseph were engaged. Mary goes out of town, comes back into town. Not only is she pregnant, right? But she's obviously pregnant by someone other than Joseph. That's gotta be very, very difficult. Now, guys, I'm I'm not trying to be a jerk here or trying to be funny with this at all. We have to have a lot of grace for Joseph. I mean, you have to imagine what that would be like. Be, be put in his shoes. So your wife, or soon-to-be wife, goes off. She's out of town, comes back. She's pregnant and goes, I'm a virgin, and it was God. Okay, right? <laughs> so imagine the weight on these kids. They think that Mary was probably from 14 to 16 years old. I mean, she was young. And, and Joseph was probably in his early 20s. Now, when we look at that from our cultural standpoint... It's illegal in our culture for a 20-year-old to be married to a 14-year-old. That's against the law. But culture was extremely different in this time. 
For one, when women got pregnant, they didn't have hospitals and all kinds of doctors on hand. So it made a lot more sense for women to start their families young because their bodies could handle it better. It was better for the child. It was just easier for them to get pregnant at a younger age. So women were different and men were different. In Joseph's time period, men in their late teens, early 20s were so uh, independent already that they could build a house, provide for their family at a very, very young age. That's why it was very common for a 20-year-old man to marry a 15-year-old girl. But imagine her coming back being pregnant, everyone knows it's not Joseph's, they're not even married yet, which means by law she could have been stoned in the street for doing, you know, if she had done something wrong. So imagine the looks that they got. Imagine the people whispering and talking and gossiping. Imagine being a 15-year-old girl knowing that the savior of mankind is in your stomach. Imagine being Joseph being like, How do I discipline the savior of the world after he's born, right? How do I teach him anything? So what's amazing about this, and we tend to miss it, we learn the importance of character, we learn the importance of trust, we learn the importance of obedience, and we even learn the importance of love before Jesus is born. We learn these things right off the bat in Matthew chapter one. Okay, let's continue on. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. So Joseph had doubts, and we've already said it, I mean, rightfully so. Who in that situation wouldn't have had doubts? I love what the Bible says, though. It says Joseph was a righteous man. But again, like any of us, he had doubts. So God intercepted his doubts via an angel in a dream. He intercepted those doubts, and he gave Joseph clarity. Now, again, we're going to be honest in here this morning. We've already been maybe too honest, but we're going to be honest in here this morning. We're all going to have doubts. Listen, every single one of you in this room, if you're a Christian long enough, mark my words, there will come a time where you will look in the mirror and say, am I a fool for believing what I believe? We will all have those momentary lapses of doubt. We will all have questions. Listen, John the Baptist was the greatest man that ever lived according to Jesus. I would put that on my resume, right? Greatest man that ever lived says Jesus. So he actually says that about John the Baptist in the Gospels. If you read and study about John the Baptist, John the Baptist was in jail waiting to be beheaded, right? And so as he's in jail waiting to get his head cut off, John tells his followers, go find Jesus and double check that he is worth dying for. I'm about to lose my head. Go make sure that Jesus is everything that he says he is. So the followers of John track down Jesus and in front of a bunch of Jesus's followers, The followers of John said, Jesus, 
John's about to lose his head and he's worried that maybe you're not whatever you, whatever you say you are. So we need confirmation. Are you the savior? And Jesus in front of all these people said, yes, go back and tell John I am everything that I say that I am. And, and a bunch of these people around Jesus, they started kind of talking smack about John. And Jesus interrupts him and says, well, wait a second. John is the greatest man that has ever lived. Now, what's important about that story is we learn sometimes we're gonna get scared and have doubts. Sometimes we're gonna have questions. That's not a sin to have doubt sometimes. It's not a sin to have questions. The sin is, is when God gives us an answer, we don't like that answer and we continue on with our doubt. That's when sin creeps in. But it is not a sin for us to ask questions. So this couple, Mary and Joseph, they stayed celibate for a time. And after the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph had other siblings. These are kind of, or I'm sorry, other children, which became siblings of Jesus. I call them half-siblings because same mom, different dad. But uh, <laughs> the point is, is that eventually God gave them more children. And I don't mean this disrespectfully, but it was probably very abnormal raising Jesus, right? Especially for Joseph, who was not his biological father. But God saw Joseph's faithfulness, Mary's faithfulness, gave them other children. So they had a little bit more of a, a normal family for these other kids. So if you're Catholic in here, um, and if you're raised Catholic in here, Catholics don't believe that Mary and Joseph ever had any other children. But the problem is, is, is the Bible actually mentions them by name. In fact, James, the book of James, was Jesus's half-brother. The point is this, though, and maybe you don't do this. Maybe it's just me. How often in our times when, when life is intense, when life is difficult, when we don't have all the answers, how often do we forget how faithful God has been in the past? Mary and Joseph could have very easily got wrapped up in the intensity of their situation and freaked out and gave up and, and, and didn't trust God, but they did. How often in our situations do times get tough and things get crazy and we forget that God has always been faithful in the past? So why would he stop being faithful now? In the Old Testament, they would build monuments when God did something miraculous. When God parted the Jordan River, I don't know if you know that God parted multiple bodies of water, but after he parted the Jordan River, they built a, a monument, a memorial to that, so they would remember that God did something. He was faithful in that moment. Maybe we need to take more time to remember so we won't freak out so much in the future when hard times come. So they had a baby boy, and they named him Jesus. Now, what's interesting is Jesus was actually a pretty common name. Jewish boys had been running around with a similar name for a long time, for centuries. So the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew, Joshua, is Yeshua, Jesus. And so it means God is salvation. So why in the world would the Savior of mankind have such a normal name? The reason why is it shows the character of Jesus when he was on earth, that Jesus was the savior for everyone. He was for the every man. He was for the every woman. That Jesus came, he came, he chose to come in humility, not this opulent arrogance, right? So he came as someone that everyone could relate to and follow and connect with. That's why he had this common name. What Jesus was and what Jesus still is, is he is the bridge. He is the connector between humanity and God. 
His name, how he came to earth, being born in this extremely humble way, his mission that we're gonna study. Man, when we get into Matthew, how Jesus connected with people, fascinating and beautiful. It show us that Jesus was God incarnate, that he had come to, to build that bridge, to reconcile that gap between a fallen humanity and a perfect God. So what that means is this. For the humble seeker of truth, that sentence is huge. We have to be humble. We have to want to know the truth. And if we are humble, and if we want to know the truth, as we get into the gospel of Matthew, we're going to find our purpose, and we're going to find our identity. We live in a culture now that is obsessed with identity. I'm white. I'm a male. I'm heterosexual. I'm, all, I'm American. We have all these things that we find our identity in, and we cling to those things, but those things do not give us fulfillment and purpose. And so that's why Paul writes later in the New Testament, listen, we're not Jews or Greeks. We're not slave or free. We're not male or female. We're not rich or poor. We are all one under Jesus Christ. That's your identity. Your identity is the fact that you are made in the image of God. Your identity is that you're a son of the king. You're a daughter of the king. And that's what Jesus came to tell us. He came to communicate to us our purpose, our identity, and how he was going to bridge that gap between broken, fallen humanity and a perfect God. That's what he came to do. If we will be humble and if we will look for the answers, God's gonna show you a lot in the next seven or eight months as we study this book. But what have we learned today? One of the first things we learned today is that context matters. If we don't read the Bible within its proper context, we can get into a lot of trouble. We can teach some really dangerous things. Let's see, I've been doing this at all four services. Let's see what happens. So you ever met those people who are just like, well, I'm going to read the Bible. I'm just going to flip it open. Wherever it falls, I'm going to start right there. Though the ropes of the wicked were wrapped around me, I did not forget your instruction. So whenever someone ties me up, right, I, that, that's a terrible one. I don't even know how to take that one out of context. <laughs> the point remains. <laughs> that was a fourth train wreck in a row. I should have learned after the third time I did that. This isn't a good idea. The point is this. If we just pull a passage out, you can twist and turn and manipulate and hurt people with the Bible. You can do that. Now, the Bible is not a thing intended to hurt you. It's the greatest thing we've ever been given by God except for his son, this word and this instruction. But if we take it out of context, it can be very, very dangerous. So it is important to understand culture. It's important to understand history and to pull those timeless lessons out for us to live. We've also talked about today, we can't prove or disprove God through history. We can't prove or disprove God through archaeology and science. Now again, I believe all those things do point to God. Even when people start arguing and getting into fights with people over things like the Big Bang, right? You know what's interesting? Let me tell you a fun tidbit. The only religion on planet Earth that tells the story of a God that created time is Christianity. Every other world religion, whatever the God is, creates the earth in a, in, a, in, a, in a time period that has already existed. In the Bible, it says, in the beginning. 
That doesn't mean just the beginning of the earth and the universe. It means the beginning of all time as we know it. God begins all of that. What's interesting is the science says there's a big bang. And that's fine. I'm okay with the big bang because something came from nothing and only God can do that. Makes perfect sense to me. I believe all history, science, archaeology, I believe it points to God, but we can't use that as an arguing point. The Bible calls that vain babblings. It's, it's, it's kind of worthless arguing. The point is this. It takes faith and it takes an encounter with God. It's the only way to have a relationship with him. So there must be a desire to know God and there must be an encounter. Maybe the most important thing we've learned today is there can be mistakes in our family trees. Guys, I, I hope this doesn't hurt anyone's feelings today either. I don't believe in all that generational curse bull crap. I just don't. Just because my great-grandfather was a womanizer doesn't mean that I have to be. Just because people in my past have done evil things doesn't mean I have to be. Listen, right when you give your life to Jesus Christ, those chains are broken, and Romans 6 says you're free of sin's claims, right? So those things don't affect me. And the beautiful thing is, is it doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic background is. It doesn't even matter the mistakes you've made in the past. If we will be humble and give our lives to Jesus Christ, he can use us, he can save us, he can do amazing, amazing things with us. But here's what we have to do. We have to trust him and we have to do what he tells us to do. We have to trust and obey. We've also learned today that salvation is for everyone. The only prerequisite for that is we have to want to be saved. We have to want to have a relationship with God. Salvation is for black people, for white people, for Hispanic people. It's for people of all colors and nationalities around the world. It's for men. It's for women. It's for young. It's for old. It's for everybody. It's for everyone who wants him. All of us can be saved and brought into his kingdom. We've also talked about today that we are going to have doubts. The issue is not that we're going to have doubts. The issue isn't that we're going to have questions. The issue arises is when we stop looking for the answers, when we stop looking for the truth, when we stop listening for what God wants to tell us, and when we stop responding to what God shows us, then there's a problem. So here's what we have to ask ourselves today as we kind of start this journey together into what I think is probably the most important book of the Bible. As we start this journey together, we have to ask ourselves this question, do we have ears that want to hear? In Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3, Jesus is the majority of the talking in those three chapters. And one of the things Jesus keeps saying to the different churches is he says, for those of you who have ears to hear. What that means is this. We're going to come across some stuff in the book of Matthew that might offend you. We're going to come across some stuff in the book of Matthew it may be hard for us to live. It may contradict maybe how we think and feel sometimes. We're going to come across things in the book of Matthew that call out some sin that we have committed. We're going to come across some tough stuff in this. But if we have ears to hear, if we have a desire to want to know the truth, if we respond to that truth, God will absolutely flip our lives upside down. God will bless us. He'll take care of us. We'll grow in this relationship with him. We'll grow in our relationship with each other. We can go out to our communities and be the light and the salt and the inspiration to people around us. We can do a lot of amazing things if we have a desire to want to hear the truth and apply it to our lives. So before we wrap up today, 
over here on my right, your left, Pastor Isaac's going to be hanging out over here on the corner. He's our discipleship pastor. Listen, if you are in this room and you are not a believer, one, I'm super happy you're here. My wife and I didn't become believers until we were 23 years old. So if you are in this room and you are not a believer, and maybe you have questions, maybe you believe, but you still have some questions. Isaac has a master's degree in Bible and theology. He would be more than happy to talk with you. If you have any questions for him, come up here and, and talk with him a little bit. If it's a long conversation, he'll set up a time to get coffee with you or lunch or something, but please don't be afraid of that. There's also gonna be men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything in your life, please come up here and talk to one of these men or women on either side of the stage. Let me tell you guys something about prayer real quick. Just to, just, I think we need to talk about these stories sometimes. I got a text from Jenny Brooker. That's our pastor in, in Woodbury, his wife. Jenny sent me a text the other day. She's a hospice nurse. And usually if she's texting me, there's someone that maybe I know that, that she's taking care of before they pass away. She sent me a text the other day and she said, hey, do you remember so-and-so? You prayed for him. Back in March, uh, he had stage four colon cancer. And I was kind of like, you know, yeah, I remember him. And I'm waiting. You know, he had passed away. And she says, it's pretty interesting. The doctors say it's miraculous. He's completely cancer-free. And so listen, that, that, that may have even made some of you uncomfortable in this room. I don't believe that God always heals because God has a will that's sometimes outside of our understanding, but I believe God still does heal. If you're in this room and you need prayer for something as small as maybe a job transfer, or maybe you have stage four cancer, please come up here and join with a brother and sister and let's pray together. The last thing in this room is there's communion all the way around this room, wherever you see a lamp on a table. That is the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the bread and the wine. That reminds us that Jesus Christ, this little boy we talked about today, grew up and he died for our sins, that his body was broken, that his blood was shed so we could be forgiven, so we could be redeemed like what we talked about today. Everyone is welcome to take that and remember that as long as you have asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins. Maybe as you're taking that communion today, maybe something you should think about and pray about, maybe you should ask God to give you ears that want to hear. Regardless of what this book says, this is the word of God. And so we need to say, God, it may not always feel good. It may not always align with what I'm doing. But Lord, give me ears to hear. Let me hear what you have to say and give me the strength to do it. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, I love you so much, God. I love this church. Father, as we get into the book of Matthew and as we, we do this for, for seven, eight months, however long it takes, I pray, Lord, that you give us ears to hear. Lord, I pray that you, you open up our minds, open up our hearts, God. Teach us things that we've never seen before, Lord, and draw us closer to you, draw us closer to each other and to our community. Lord, if anyone needs prayer, if anyone has questions, if anyone wants to take communion and remember what you've done for us, Lord, I just pray that you bless those individuals. God, keep your hand on us this week. Draw us closer to you, Lord. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you, guys.